I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, the Mario Movies Star Power Edition. It's Wednesday, April 26th, 2023. On today's show, we'll bleep, bloop, bloop into the Mario movie, examining what's made it such a box office sensation and how the film, which features Chris Pratt as the voice of Mario, capitalizes on Nintendo's glorious IP. Then, Chimp Empire, the new docuseries from Netflix and the director of My Octopus Teacher. It's part jaw-dropping footage and part reality show and asks us who will be Uganda's next top chimpanzee. Finally, we'll discuss Heart on My Sleeve, a song that briefly went viral last week because it sounded like a collaboration between Drake and The Weeknd, but was actually concocted using AI. Steve and Dana are both out this week, but we are extremely lucky to be joined by two of our very favorite friends of the program. Joining me today is Jamel Bowie, columnist at the New York Times. Welcome, Jamel. Hello. Thank you for having me. So fun to have you here. Also joining us is Slate Culture Writer and Culture Gab alumna, Nadira Goff. Hi, Nadira. Hey. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I'm excited to dig into all of these topics with you. Let's do it. Okay, diving in. The Super Mario Brothers movie is smashing box office records, earning nearly $900 million globally so far. It's made by Illumination Studios, famous for its little yellow minions, in close collaboration with Nintendo and Universal. And it stars Chris Pratt as Mario, a downtrodden but plucky plumber who gets diverted into a Technicolor world where he must partner with Princess Peach to save his surprisingly cowardly in this version brother, Luigi, uh, from a lugubrious Bowser voiced hilariously by Jack Black. Before we get into the film, let's take a listen to a clip. We'll hear Mario, who's just arrived in Nintendo Land, being guided through it on his way to Princess Peach by Toad, who is uh, voiced here by Keegan-Michael Key. Oh, okay, so these bricks are just floating here. Uh, pop in this pipe and we're on our way. Oh. It's the only way to fly, man. Oh, wow, love these pipes. Oh. Here we are, palace doors, big, big boom. All right. Among the reasons I'm excited to discuss this film with the two of you is that I believe the two of you have collectively played about one gajillion more hours of Mario video games than Steve and or Dana. So thank God you're here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to start with you, Jamel. What did you make of this film? Was it a satisfying rendition of Nintendo-dom or nay? So... One of the things we read ahead of time is a review of this movie for The Observer by Dylan Roth. And he makes the point that I had upon finishing the movie, which is that this is essentially a paint-by-numbers adaptation of a property. It gives you a nice little mini-history of Mario, of the franchise. You can, If you've played any of these games, and I've been playing them since I was like five years old, so... 
uh, you will recognize so many callbacks and references. You'll recognize music. I mean, it really is in you know 87 minutes the history of Mario as a character and franchise, and that's basically all it is, right? Like. As more five minutes in, you can more or less figure out where the story is going, how this is all going to get resolved, et cetera, et cetera. It very much is, again, a paint by numbers movie. And it's funny because you know, the Sonic the Hedgehog movie came out a couple years ago. And it's not like a perfect film, but it's sort of weird and like funny at points. And it has a kind of insane performance by Jim Carrey, it has like real personality. And uh, there's a funny way in which the that comparison between these two movies reflects like the comparison between the two franchises, which the Mario games are great, but they're sort of like prototypical platformer video game, where the Sonic games are in a lot of ways not quite as good, but are just a little quirky and different um, uh, compared to the Italian uh, counterpoint. Which I want to say before I wrap this up, I want to say real quick: there was like a joking controversy about Chris Pratt being cast to be Mario, but like you know, this is Italian American discrimination, <laughs> and everyone's like, "Yeah, it's really funny." And having watched the movie and seeing how much emphasis it does put on them being Italian and from Brooklyn, I do kind of think they should have cast an <laughs> Italian agree. person to play Mario. <laughs> Wait, say more, Nadora. That dinner scene. There's a scene where Mario and Luigi, um, and I love this scene so much. It's maybe one of my favorite scenes in the movie, but there's a scene where they go to dinner with their family before they sort of enter, you know, like Mushroom Kingdom and the magical world of Mario. And they're just regular plumbers in Brooklyn with this very Italian family that was so, like, Italian coded that I was like, wait, how many Italian people are actually involved in this right, cast? Right. It, it, it's like super strange that yeah. it's this very like, you know, out of the Sopranos kind of scene. I mean, you're right. You're right about that. Otherwise, I would say that I completely agree with Jamel. I don't think that I've been playing Mario properties for as long, but I've definitely played my fair share and so have my friends and the just fan service in this movie, like all of the Easter eggs from all of the different Mario IP properties in this movie becomes just like insurmountable at some point. Like you just stop counting, you know, you kind of just let it all wash over you, Um, which I think is interesting. But I also agree with just with the idea that that's kind of all the film is. I mean, I think for kids, it's very, very fun. But for adults who have no sort of previous history with Mario, I could see how it is just a very sort of cut and dry, very basic storyline with not much else to offer, except for a girl bossified Peach, which I think is interesting the way that they've sort of tried to make the Princess Peach character have a lot more of her own autonomy, um, which is something that they have kind of struggled to do throughout the history of the games and are definitely trying to solidify here. But like other than that, it's it's it is very much the same, I would say. It's worth saying that this is not the first cinematic adaptation of Mario. There was one in 1993, a live action film starring um, John Leguizamo as Luigi and um, Bob Hoskins as Mario. Mm -hmm. A wonderfully, wonderfully inspired casting. (laughs) Um, And that was a critical and commercial disaster in recent years. I think it's been rehabilitated somewhat because it is so weird. And visually, it's very interesting to watch. It was made by two music video directors, and you can very much tell, um, both in terms of where it succeeds and where it totally fails. Uh, But 
Nintendo very clearly has had cold feet after that. That was sort of the introduction of the property to a lot of people in 1993. Mm -hmm. And it was, again, this big failure. And so I think Nintendo wanted to play it uh, extremely safe in the aftermath of that, 20, 30 years later in the aftermath of that, which is a shame because... You know, when you th- the concept of Mario is extremely strange. It's so right? weird. Like, like two Italian plumbers <laughs> uh, traverse a mushroom kingdom to fight a giant sentient lizard that has captured a princess. It's very, very weird. Very weird concept. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then and the universe is like as rich as Marvel. I mean, part of the fun yeah. in the movie. And I, I did not grow up playing the games, but but a core family activity for my crew for like the last year and a half has been playing Mario Kart. Mm. I think we really love Kart, but we're Kart only, new Kart. Well, not my kids. My kids have been all over the world. And even for me, with a very glancing knowledge of of the Nintendoverse from like four sleepovers at houses that had gaming systems when I was a kid, plus a year and a half of Kart, like got that same satisfying sense of just observing all the toe touches of, oh, there's so-and-so. Oh, they found a place for such-and-such. Like, oh, it's that little theme that they play when you do the power turn. Mm -hmm. But the thing that's interesting about this densely populated IP universe is that it sort of has story and it sort of doesn't. And I was thinking about some of the other kind of toy universe adaptations, like the Lego movie to me, the first one is excellent. It's a really, really good movie. It manages to be surprising. It manages to build characters who are distinctive and and the sort of lesson that it decides to draw from Lego of be creative. Sure, that's a fine lesson. But it like really works as a, a thing that transcends the source material. And I found myself trying to explain, articulate to my children why I found this to be solid but not excellent because it was only kind of toe-touching the Nintendo world without doing anything new with it Um, and explaining to 10 year olds what it means for something to transcend its source material (laughs) turns out to be a project (laughs) that I'm not sure I was fully prepared for (laughs) on a Sunday afternoon. But, but even the lesson that they try to draw from it, uh, you know, of like, Oh, trying, trying again, being persistent is valuable, which is arguably a lesson of being frustrated in video games. Like, I don't know. There just was no, (laughs) there was no element of surprise. Even, even the scenes that worked best, there's a, the Seth Rogen plays Donkey Kong. There's a confrontation between Mario and Donkey Kong. That is pretty fun and funny Mm -hmm. largely, I think because of Seth Rogen's, um, gleeful embodiment of a deranged Donkey Kong, uh, kind of a vainglorious Donkey Kong. You're like, okay, that's like a, that's a, that's a funny way to take that Jack Black's. Um, Being the most Jack Black ever. Yeah. yeah. I, I, th- that was my favorite part. Yeah, Jack Black same. as Bowser was my favorite part of the movie. And I could, I could have done with more Bowser, like singing Love Lauren ballads. Yes, same. <laughs> <laughs> but like they didn't, it, it didn't get weird enough for such a weird universe. Like, I mean, my, I always play card as King Boo. I was glad there was a King Boo cameo at the wedding. But like, can, can I raise a controversial question? Was this movie too short? Like, did it? Even oh, though we all hate when movies are two hours instead of 90 minutes, like, did it need a little room to, like, play with the shagginess of the weirdness and not feel so perfunctory? I mean, I don't know if it needed more time. Personally, I feel like what it needed was um, a sense of confidence to not stick to the same exact story. I feel like 
as a society, we are mostly familiar with these characters enough by now that they could have had any other conflict other than Bowser tries to kidnap Princess Peach yet again. You know, it felt like they could have just maybe done it in a different story. And I think it would have still paid homage to the IP and to Nintendo and history while also maybe giving people an actual movie to watch that isn't something that they've seen time and time before, but I might be alone on that island. I don't know. No, I think that's exactly right. I, I'm I'm pro. I, I love the 90 minute movie. There should be more of mm. them. If you're going to make a movie that's not 90 minutes, I strongly believe it should be three hours. It's like one or the other. <laughs> um, and I think the problem here isn't so much that it's too short, but yeah, that it's it's not it's like not confident it's like mm-hmm. it, it, it it's a movie that reflects nintendo's um history with cinematic adaptations which has not been great it reflects the history with the adapt- with video game adaptations in right. the movies in general which is just like not there are very few if any ones you can call good mm-hmm. i think maybe the last video game adaptation i saw into a movie that i could say this is solid was the Tomb Raider film with uh, Alicia Vikander mm. a couple years ago. That was a pretty decent movie. You know, prior to my screening, there was a preview for the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Mm-hmm. Again, a very old property, IP, lots of adaptations. And it's like, that. I'm, I'm actually kind of excited to see that movie because it seems like that adaptation is doing what um, this movie should have done which is just take for granted that people know who the, these characters are and go from there. Don't got to explain anything. Everyone knows who the Ninja Turtles are. Everyone knows who Mario is. Mario is one of the most popular characters on the planet. So you can kind of just skip the introductions. You didn't need that establishment scene where they like go and try to do plumbing at somebody's house in Brooklyn. I mean, I did kind of laugh at that. I thought that <laughs> I was the I thought Brooklyn that was funny. part. Yeah. yeah, I like the Brooklyn part because you don't really get the Brooklyn part in the games. You know what I mean? And so, if there's any sort of diversion from what the regular story is, then I'm all for that. But with that being said, I I want them to keep trying. I think that 2023 is maybe the year that video game adaptations into film or TV are starting to be taken seriously, and I want that to be a trend that continues for sure. The movie is the Super Mario Brothers movie. It is a wild success. Please share your thoughts with us at culturefest at slate.com. All right, on to our next. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk some business. Nadira, what have we got today? Well, today we just have one item of business, and that's to tell listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we will be talking about the state of cable news, which, of course, comes after the recent announcements that Tucker Carlson will no longer be at Fox and Don Lemon will no longer be at CNN. Because Julia and I have Jamel as a wonderful guest host today, we thought it would be best to use him to our fullest abilities and get his take on everything that's going down and all of the drama that's unfolding and perhaps the future of cable news. So if you're a Slate Plus member, make sure to stay tuned for that segment at the end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content like the Slate Plus segment I just mentioned. You'll also get to hear members-only programming on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gap Fest. And members get unlimited access to all the great writing on slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. I should also mention that you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate. So please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, back to the show. Our next topic is Chimp Empire, the new docuseries from Netflix and director James Reed, who also directed the controversial My Octopus Teacher, which we discussed a few years back. It tells the story of a chimp community in Nagogo, Uganda, and pairs the kind of storytelling techniques of a nature documentary with the storytelling techniques of reality television. It's based on more than 30 years of research on this community of chimpanzees, which means that each chimp has been given by the scientists who study them a name, and there's a depth of knowledge about their personalities, their place in the social pecking order, um, and kind of the social hierarchies of this vast community of chimpanzees, which, as we learn watching the four-part docuseries, is riven into two rival groups who are headed for a confrontation. In this clip from the show, we'll get a sense of the style of the documentary and hear a little bit about Gus, a heartstring-tugging adolescent um, who we will learn about here. 14 is not an easy age for a male chimp. You've grown apart from your mother. And you need to start bonding with other males. That comes more easily to some than others. Gus is an outsider, but he can't stay that way. He needs to find some friends. In the forest of Ngogo, it's not wise to spend too much time alone. One thing that that clip uh, reveals, which I failed to mention, is that the narrator of this docuseries is Mahershala Ali, who lends a, a 
gravitas and kind of emotional poignancy to his description of the the social plights of all of these chimps. Uh, also, what that clip fails to reveal is that poor Gus tries to find his place in the social hierarchy by going up to and grooming one of the alpha males in his group and what would show him acceptance is if that alpha male turns around and grooms him back. But instead, having received his grooming, the alpha male just trundles off into the jungle, leaving Gus sad, alone on a log. Um, and there's a lot of sad chimps on logs in this uh, feature. Um, Nadira, A, are you a regular watcher of nature documentaries? And B, what did you make of this one? Great questions. So A, no, no, I am not. I prefer humans <laughs> generally. Um, and when I do prefer nature documentaries, they are usually um, some version of like amphibian, marine, anything to do with water, which I find to be mostly interesting. Um, Upon watching this, my very first thought is that my love for Mahershala Ali knows no bounds. He is probably the only person <laughs> who I would entertain um, talking to me about chimps for about four hours, I guess, as this rounds out to be by the end. Um, so that was my very first thought. And I thought that he is incredible as the narrator of Chimp Empire. My second thought is that I'm really glad that we showed that per or listened to that particular clip because... My favorite parts of the documentary were all of the sort of sad chimps on logs, as you mentioned, and <laughs> and the babies. I kind of had zero interest in what Chimp Empire was actually about, which is this humongous power struggle between these two rivaling factions of chimps in, in Gogo. And I was very, very interested in the sort of inter connectivity between the actual groups themselves, the moms, and how they deal with being mothers. There's um, a really, really beautiful story of an older sister who has to deal with um, losing some attention from her mom to a newborn baby and how she handles with being a sister and all of this and like Gus and trying to, you know, be a part of this group. And I really, I, I don't know, I was more in tune with the sort of like loner chimps than I was with the, um, with the all powerful male chimps um and so i really wanted more of those moments on how like daily life is for the chimps that isn't related to the sort of power struggle or the super stressful parts um but yeah when it got to those parts i was really really interested especially the babies i could look at baby chimps all day i think they're so cute they are and they sort of look older and younger than the other chimps like mm -hmm. somehow they look like the oldest chimps of all in a funny way <laughs> jamal what did you make of this oh well i agree with you that um Baby chimps are very cute and very compelling <laughs> to watch on screen. So, you know, I'm not, I don't really watch nature documentaries. I'm not opposed to nature. I go hiking. I like being outside. But nature documentaries have never really been my thing. And so this was, yeah, I watched this as sort of like, oh, this is interesting. It's good. It's interesting to see this close up of these chimps. Uh, interesting to get a glimpse into the chimp society, I suppose. But I think I have like a fundamental ideological problem <laughs> with this whole project, which is <laughs> that part of the argument, and I'm, I'm not sure the creators would frame it as an argument, but from my perspective, part of the argument of chimp empire is that there are real similarities between chimp society and human society. And they say in the beginning, right, we share 98% of our DNA with, with chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are remarkably similar to us to all these ways. And what I think that does 
And, and 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 we're also watching, you know, in terms of the adult male chimps, we're watching a competition for power and status within a hierarchy. And what I think that does is it naturalizes human competition for status and dominance within a hierarchy. Whether the creators intend to or not, it suggests that that competition, that the presence of hierarchies is somehow part of the natural order of things in human society. And although we do share these similarities with chimpanzees, it'd be, it'd be silly to deny that, the thing, the 2% of our DNA that differs is actually really critical. 2% is not a lot, but in, in this case, it is crucial. And part of what distinguishes us from chimpanzees, from other social animals, is actually our capacity to change the nature of our social arrangements and our ability to relate to each other. And so although there might be some natural competition for status and dominance within hierarchy, the thing about being human is that we don't have to do that and that we can create a world in which we don't have to do that. And I, what, what bothers me about the whole conceit of this is that is precisely the extent to which it naturalizes and suggests that the world around us consumed in competition for dominance and status within hierarchy is somehow the natural world. There's a really interesting line, actually, in the, I think it's the second episode where they're setting up the conflict between the central group. This is one of the largest chimp communities mm -hmm. anywhere known on Earth. And then there's a small, the, so the centralers, and then there's the westerners, which is this smaller group with slightly different social dynamics, and they're headed for a power struggle. And there's a line where they specifically say, unlike humans... It's actually after we watch one group kill an outlier from the other group. And we don't quite watch it, but we kind of do watch it. it the, the, the show is a, a little bit reserved about violence and then also a little bit excited about whatever footage it's captured. And tonally, that creates some weirdnesses too. But there's a line in the narration where it says, unlike humans, chimps are incapable of forming a bond with someone outside their own group. And it's such an interesting line because, A, you're totally right, Jamel. They mm -hmm. set up in the first episode, like, the reason that you would watch this show is like, whoa, chimps, they're just like us, or are they? And then they're really wanting, they, they clearly are beginning to feel the, like, moral problem with that analogy <laughs> in this group where we, they've set up the Westerners as sort of the protagonists, and then they just, like, kill an old guy for no reason. And they're like, well, 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 but this part humans never do. But I also think, although I think you're right that the analogy that the show is trying to make is a little oversimplified and a little clumsy. Um, and given the kind of emotional obtuseness of my octopus teacher, which did you guys see that film? I have not. No, no. I, I remember all the discourse about it. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to watch this. One. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's it's a similar combination of like very, very strikingly beautiful footage and actually if you like underwater stuff Nadira it's worth it it's like okay. very it's I'll a very cool out. portrait of like life in the kelp beds um, see that sounds like also, uh, that's where I want to be in the kelp beds yeah it's, <laughs> it's, it's definitely worth it's definitely worth watching but it's also you know follows a protagonist who's like a, a human protagonist who's basically losing his mind and fails to reckon with it completely so then the notion of like 
sort of having your priorities out of mm. balance between what your moral lessons are and what your cool ass footage is feels um, apropos. But I also think what is fascinating about watching the chimpanzees is that no, they're not humans, but also it is so uncanny. And as much as humans can transcend uh, whatever power dynamics and struggles for dominance and this, that, and the other, there are echoes, even when the chimps are being aggressive idiots where you're like, oh, I have, I have seen humans be <laughs> yeah. aggressive idiots. Like, you know, we were, my husband came through for 20 minutes and was like, oh, it's just Putin, like hopped up on fruit and just going after territory for no reason. <laughs> it's like the the behaviors of of aggression and signaling, like that is part of what's powerful about it, even if the show is drawing an oversimplified but analogy th- about it. I think that that's maybe why those parts deeply disinterested me is because mm. th- those parts were kind of predictable, right? Like as soon as the show starts off with, yes, humans and chimps share 98% of their DNA, then I'm like, okay, great. We're going to see some aggro males being aggro males. Like what's new? But I, I've, I, I yeah, I, like as much as that is a sort of accepted conclusion and reality of the sort of relationship between us and them, it's also one that I'm already uh, bombarded with enough in my real life that I don't need to also then see it in the animal kingdom in uh, amongst the chimps. And I'd much rather just like talk about the loner chimps that just want some friends or, you know, are trying not to be an asshole older sibling or, you know, are dealing with a sort of more um, mundane uh, dilemma with attention as opposed to a... Uh, like entire community changing level of attention. I also found the my my other favorite sad chimp moment or minor key chimp moment was there's a adolescent female chimp Joya who's mm-hmm. suddenly starting to learn how to take care of the babies mm-hmm. and she's absolutely terrible at it for <laughs> for like yeah. a minute and I liked that too that it challenged the idea of like neat in nature Everybody knows how to do everything immediately. She's like literally like drags a baby down a tree by mistake because she doesn't know how to hold or carry a baby. And it's like, yeah, it's a thing. It's nature and nurture. You have to learn it. She has to learn it from the other senior chimps. So there's a lot of kind of minor key moments like that that are lovely. I mean, the part I liked about the aggression, honestly, was not the metaphor to human existence, but just the displays and the way that the chimps move. I mean, you know, I've seen chimps at a zoo, but it's, it's Mm -hmm. really striking and beautiful and cool to, and, and crazy and alien to kind of see what their bodies look like and how they move when they're in that aggressive mode. But um, would you guys recommend that people check this out? The footage is very beautiful. And, if you want something just kind of playing in the background while you do other stuff, I actually think, you know, you look glance over, over every so often and you yeah. see something really um, cool looking, I think. I think I would recommend it in that sense. I just want to really quickly comment on something you said, Julia, about just sort of the alienness of how the chimps move. I would have preferred a documentary that was much more focused on that. Give this footage to Werner Herzog and see what he does with it. And that's, that's the movie I want to watch. All right. We'll leave it there. The series is Chimp Empire. If you want to learn more about the plight of Lonely Gus or watch beautiful footage questionably put together of chimps swinging through the trees, check it out and let us know what you think at culturefest at slate.com.
This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. All right, our final topic today. Will artificial intelligence kill the radio slash video star? Uh, recently, a song called Heart on My Sleeve got a lot of plays in part because it sounded uncannily like a collaboration between extremely popular musicians Drake and The Weeknd, and in part because it was not a collaboration between extremely popular musicians Drake and The Weeknd, but was in fact made with artificial intelligence. Let us start by listening to this song, and then we will discuss what we made of it and of this development in the sonic landscape. Talking to a diva, yeah, she on my nerves. She thinks that I need her, kick her to the curb. All I know is you could have had the world, had the world. Yeah, you on my world. Got these girls on my neck, got these girls on my track. I'm Selena, baby, on my cheetah, baby, yeah. All right, Jamal, we'll start with you. Did that sound plausibly to you like a collaboration between Drake and The Weeknd? To me, it sounds kind of like them. But when you start listening to the lyrics, especially Drake's lyrics, it, it, it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like AI trying to replicate what a Drake song might sound like. But you don't have to be a fan of Drake as a lyricist to kind of recognize that, um, uh, this this would be a, a terrible Drake song, like by Drake's <laughs> own standards. So I, I, have, I have the lyrics up, up. I came in with my ex like Selena to flex a bumping Justin Bieber. The fever ain't left a that's terrible. That's awful. And it would only sound good to someone who sort of has a view of hip hop or even of just Drake as kind of undifferentiated sounds. And as long as you can kind of like vaguely replicate what they sound like, you have something kind of authentic sounding. And this is one of my takes is that I just find this profoundly unconvincing that like, yes, it sort of sounds like them. The production isn't, I think, all that great. Like this isn't it's sort of generic you know, 2010s hip hop production. Um, and so to me, this, as someone who listens to a lot of hip hop, this sounds more like a simulacrum of Drake in the weekend more than the actual thing. My other take, my political take, I always have a political <laughs> take, 
is that I think it is interesting that the first targets for AI music has been hip hop. The New York Times piece on this sort of gestures at this aspect of it. Because hip-hop, while very popular genre, it's not necessarily the most popular genre. You could do country western, right? You could do a Nashville country AI song. And I think people would find it similarly convincing. Um, But there's always been in kind of the history of American popular music, this like real conflict about the value of the music produced by African-American artists. There's always been this desire, at least on part of the people who sell this stuff, to somehow be able to get the monetary benefit of selling black music without necessarily having black people as part of the equation. Um, uh, And although, yes, there are AI artists who uh, I think a few are black themselves and it's, you know, there's a lot going on here. I find it, I find it interesting at the very least that um, uh, it is this genre with these kinds of musicians for whom people are saying, oh, we can kind of cut them out. We can we can cut out the actual music, musicians and just like produce the music without them. Um, it, it it feels like sort of like the next evolution of like Vanilla Ice, right? Like Elvis, Vanilla Ice, AI rap um, as an attempt to capitalize on the uh, the popularity of black music but necessarily having to deal with black people. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we should say here, this track was created by someone online who goes by the name Ghostwriter, whose identity and motives we don't know. I think mm-hmm. it's, my assumption is that it's probably some music artist, computer nerd person who's like curious about all of this and playing with the technology rather than a corporation striving to cut black artists out of the out of the system but i think your observation stands jamal in that that the fact that this is where the experiments are happening or at least the experiments that are happening are gaining attention and traction is is kind of telling and and intriguing nadir what did you make of this song right uh a lot of things are going through my mind right now but the first that jamal's Uh, thoughts reminded me of is that there is a sort of solid example of everything that he's talking about, which is last year, um, the entirely fictional virtual AI rapper FN Mecca um, was a thing that was very, very popular. And it garnered enough popularity, this fake viral internet AI rapper, garnered enough popularity on TikTok that it was actually signed to Capitol Records, but only for about 10 days before Capitol Records dropped FN Mecca from its label because there was a lot of controversy and backlash about FN Mecca uh, stereotyping Black people and stealing from Black culture and pretending to be a Black artist and Black person when, in fact, there was no actual real person involved. And so I think that, I mean, there was a person that developed it, but FN Mecca itself was not a Black person and the person that developed it wasn't either. So I think that there's definitely some hardcore examples to be, um, to sort of support everything that Jamel was saying and to make us wary about 
the way that AI is starting to leak into the music industry and the sort of types of artistry that it's most sought to create. And I do think we would be remiss if we didn't just say that Black culture, and specifically in the music industry, Black music, is the zeitgeist of today. Is like the current thing that everyone's trying to incorporate or collaborate with, if not making it themselves. And a part of that, I wonder in terms of how that relates to AI, a part of that I think is maybe practical because I think that it's just easier. Like if we're listening to this Drake and Weekend song, the Drake part is actually the more uh, convincing part to me, not necessarily because the lyrics, I completely agree with Jamel, the lyrics are horrible. But in terms of just a pure, from a pure sonic level, it sounds like Drake to me, to be honest. And I say this as someone who like actually really likes Drake. I know it's problematic of me, but whatever, it's fine. <laughs> but it's the weekend parts that I think are probably the clearest giveaway that it's AI. And I think AI in terms of musical creations and covers and things, um, I think singing is sort of the bridge that it hasn't entirely been able to get over, um, to cross. And I, I, so a part of me thinks that it's maybe just practical because it's probably easier for an AI to render someone talking than it is for them to render um, a singing performance. But I, I wouldn't put it past... I mean, I guess generally my feeling about AI, and I think that AI as it is now, as it's being publicized, is 100% a labor story, whether we're talking about journalism, whether we're talking about um, the music industry, everyone's worried that AI is going to steal their job. Um, And I work with a lot of people who have been like, you know, I believe in the power of humanity and that we will always be able to tell whether something was created by a human or not, and that will be the thing that saves us. And I, not to be a doomer, but I just not so sure. To your point about singing, Nadira, actually, let's listen to another um, AI clip that that has been circulating. I think it was less of a sensation than Heart of My Sleeve. But here is a clip posted by Yeezy Beaver on YouTube, although it's not clear whether that person made it. It's uh, an AI version of Kanye West singing Hey There, Delilah by the Plain White Tees. Hey there, Delilah, what's it like in New York City? I'm a thousand miles away, but girl, tonight you look so pretty. Yes, you do. Times Square can't shine as bright as you. I swear it's true. I can see why this clip might, to some people, feel like it negates what I just said. But to me, it doesn't feel that way to me, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> to to me, as much as it maybe sound, I mean, I think I just can't get over the implausibility of it actually existing as a thing. <laughs> so maybe my point from before is wrong. But this to me just feels even more impossible because I know that <laughs> just like there's no reality in which I feel like this would actually be an occurrence that would happen. It doesn't sound that convincing to me. I don't know. Right. I'm like a, I'm very much an AI skeptic. Not that I don't think the stuff can do anything, but that I think that people are so so want to be impressed by AI that they're like ignoring the obvious tells that something is AI. Right. Right. They're like they're they're convincing themselves that it's that it's somehow indistinguishable from the real thing when it very much is not. Like this to me. Sounds like 80% like Kanye, but having listened to a lot of Kanye in my life, it's like, there are things that make it clear that like, it's a little, it's very much like not him Mm -hmm. really. 
even to me, a musical idiot, both of the clips we've played are like patently dopey. Like, like I can still tell basically, Yeah, you know, like there's just no world where Kanye sings something with such, um, something so dippy with such sincerity without any like wink or smart. Like I I know enough about Kanye to know there's no way that he would sing that in a sustained way without cutting it or undercutting it or, or having a, something sly yeah. it would not be his artistic representation of this song at all even no. if he yeah. even if he were covering that right. song it would not sound which like he this. wouldn't yeah it would never ever yeah. ever ever sound like that like it's just it defies plausibility but even that relies on like me knowing a little bit about kanye just a little bit and so um it uh, the thing that i find unnerving about it is just that as you know here we are six months into the life where suddenly all we talk about is AI after basically like never talking about AI except for like occasionally looking at a science fiction movie for Mm -hmm. decades. And I can tell now, (laughs) but I can, but my ability to tell the difference is based on my underlying expertise. And as AI is moving into realms where my expertise is scanter and scanter and more and more tenuous, that's what I find unnerving. I think the one big question that I have about this, specifically AI-generated music as opposed to chat GPT or something like that, is that I don't actually see any sort of real-world implication for it. Like, even if it's, you know, help finding a sample that you want to use to produce um, some sort of instrumental track or something like that, like, a part of uh, crate digging and all of that stuff, like, that's a part of the artistry, right? That's a part of what um, helps you build your skills as a DJ or a producer. And so even the sort of minute, more minute tasks that AI music could help with in terms of the music industry, I don't necessarily see them as being beneficial in any way. Like, I just don't see that actual artists would want to maybe prioritize utilizing them that way over just doing it themselves. But that's maybe also just a sort of narrow-minded, um, it could be a narrow-minded understanding of the ways that AI could make being a music producer or a singer or whatever easier. I'm not sure. I mean, my, my sense is that, like, the, the perfect use case for something like this is for getting around song licensing right. and other and other um, mediums, right? Like, you want to make a film and you want to have a popular song in the film, but licensing it costs a bunch of money, and so you do it AI, and it's, like, original, so it's not really the artist. And that, that I mean, to me, that's theft, first of all. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, but I, I think that's, that's the... That to me is like a, a use case for it. Oh, that's so that makes me feel so squicky. I hate that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and to go back to Jamel's original political take, like, you know, there is a world where a corporation is like, instead of having A and R guys find talented young right. people and turn them into musicians and share a bunch of revenue with them and you know, have them turn into Taylor Swift and start buying up their masters and fighting with Ticketmaster. Like, what if it's just a computer we own? <laughs> You know, then we don't have to share any of the money. Yeah. All right. Wow. We went down many, many fascinating alleyways there. Thank you to Robot Drake and Robot Weekend for ushering us along the way. Uh, Listeners, please let us know what you thought of the song at culturefest at slate.com. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Jamal. Please kick us off today. I have a movie to recommend. 
That is yes. not the Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> That's the opposite of the Mario Brothers movie, in <laughs> fact. So every so often, I will kind of go down this rabbit hole of like choosing a filmmaker and just sort of watching all of their movies sequentially. Um, both because as much as I love film and watch a lot of movies, there are like a lot of big gaps in my cinematic knowledge and I would like to fill them. And partly because I think it's useful just to see how a filmmaker develops over time, whether they're using the same cinematographers over time. Like you can kind of see who they keep going back to, themes they keep returning to, all these sorts of things. And so this year I'm doing that with Mike Nichols, um, the late great. And I recently watched Carnal Knowledge, which I believe is his mm-hmm. third film um, after Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And The Graduate. And Carnal Knowledge feels very much like a follow-up to The Graduate, um, uh, dealing with sort of like callow youth, uh, but following that kind of character or to those characters. It's later in life, and it's his fourth film, because before that he has a Catch-22 adaptation, which is fine. Um, Having watched Carnal Knowledge for the first time recently, my two thoughts are, this is an excellent film, just like... It grabs you immediately and like hard to turn your eyes away. And that's because my second thought, it is perhaps one of the great films about two of the biggest pieces of shit you can imagine. Just like world-class assholes. Um, and it stars Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel as initially two college guys who just want to get laid. And it kind of follows their relationships with women and their descent I'm not really, the sense is the wrong word, how the misogyny that is there in them as young people kind of festers and blossoms into something truly horrible by the time they are middle-aged. Wonderful film, some visuals that are truly kind of incredible, including one sequence of a character nervously laughing and then guffawing and then like going back to nervous laughter, all kind of the camera centered on her and she's sort of enveloped in shadows. It's like really incredible. Um, so it's a wonderful film to look at. Like I said, it's hard to take your eyes away from it. Uh, but also if you, if you check this out, if you've never seen it before, fair warning, it, the, these might be the two worst people ever put on film as like characters. I make no comments about Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel's actual lives. I have not seen that, yeah, but I neither. read the Mike Nichols bio, um, which I think we talked about on the show, the Mark Harris book. Have you read that, Jamal? I haven't. I should. Mm-hmm. I, and I like Mark Harris's work a lot, so I should check that out. Reading that book made me want to watch that uh, movie because it was not an untroubled production. <laughs> uh, Nadir, what have you got for us? So my sort of, uh, well, not sort of, my Jamaican uh, heritage and background has come to be a topic of conversation many times over the past, you know, week and a half or so, I'd say. Um, Just this morning, today, it was uh, announced that Harry Belafonte unfortunately passed away. That is the very, very popular, groundbreaking Jamaican-American singer and civil rights activist. Um, And... This is less about Harry Belafonte, but more about um, I really, really appreciated his the way he brought Jamaican culture to the world. Um, And I want to, on a very smaller scale, provide a similar service. Um, So my endorsement this episode is for Jamaican breakfast, which is something that I was just talking to our producer Cameron about. 
Jamaican breakfast is a very, very lovely meal. There's many different things that could be a part of a Jamaican breakfast. But I find that many Americans who are familiar with Jamaican cuisine often go for lunch or dinner and don't know anything about Jamaican breakfast. Most popularly, the dish that I had for breakfast today that I was telling Cameron about is ackee and saltfish, which is our like unofficial, official uh, national dish. It's hard to describe. It's made with salt fish, which is a salt sort of preserved Pollock fish. And it is sautéed with a whole bunch of uh, veggies and seasonings and then combined with ackee, which is a fruit that has a more savory, buttery type of flesh to it um, that has a very interesting history and background in Jamaica. And so that's probably the most famous dish. But I think Jamaican breakfast is just a very, very lovely occasion. You can have saltfish and callaloo. You can have a whole manner of different types of porridges. My favorite is cornmeal porridge or plantain or banana porridge. Jamaicans make porridge out of anything. You can also have a whole bunch of lovely sort of like boiled starches from pumpkin to yam to Jamaican sweet potato. And I feel like Jamaican breakfast does not get as much love as it should in the cuisine circuit. So if you are a fan of Jamaican food and if you're a fan of Jamaican culture, then I highly suggest going to your local Jamaican restaurant for breakfast and seeing what they have on offer for breakfast. And I also just want to take this moment to say that we love Harry Belafonte and we love everything that he's done for our culture in terms of bringing it to the world. So a very weird all over the place endorsement for me, but that's what no, it is. No, <laughs> I love that. I love that. I'm um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that recommendation. Um, it is a big subject of conversation in Los Angeles about where one finds the best Caribbean food because mm. there is, of course, a lot of great food of many many different cuisines here in Los Angeles. But in terms of Caribbean food, the the L.A. New York beefs vis a vis Caribbean food and its availability and excellence in um, in L.A. Are, create some of the strongest debates in the Los Angeles <laughs> Times Slack channels with, <laughs> with vigorous partisans on all sides. So I'm going to have to go to my my local resources here. Um, all right. I will briefly conclude, not with an endorsement, but with a brief story and a resolution. Um, so I was so saddened to see the news of Harry Belafonte's death this morning, in part because through a bit of serendipity, just a couple days ago, I was driving around LA with my family and we were playing some Harry Belafonte and my daughter, who's nearly two, just fell in love with it. And she's at the age of like easy sonic addiction and dictatorial nature. And she just forbade us from moving on in the playlist and made us repeat the songs over and over again. And then apparently on the drive back, which I was not on, my husband tried to play a history podcast and she was like, no podcast, no podcast, song, song. <laughs> so um, I loved sort of the kismet of my daughter discovering Harry Belafonte's music um, just on the eve of his death. And uh, my resolution is to watch the documentary Sing Your Song, which came out, I think, in 2011 and which got really, really good reviews and tells the story both um, of Belafonte's musical and cultural contributions and his political activism. Um, And I never watched it. So my resolution is I will watch it and I will watch it with my children who now either adore him or resent him because my daughter's love for him is preventing them from listening to the podcast they want to listen to. But either way, we will learn together more about him. All right. Thank you so much, Nadir and Jamal. It was so fun chatting with you about these topics. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. 
You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. I'm Julia Turner. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.